0: Alright, take four.
1: It's the Do Politics Better Podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And
0: I'm Sky David. Happy Friday in Seapol. After sitting down to do the podcast, Brian. <laughs> Had a couple spills, <laughs> and after twenty minutes of sitting here, we are finally starting.
1: Yeah, spilled my V eight.
0: Drop the coaster.
1: But yeah, we're starting. We got <laughs> the podcast. Everything's is fine. Everything's <laughs> great. Just one of those days. We're recording on Thursday afternoon, and we had some news this week in NC poll.
0: A lot of news, actually. Mm -hmm. So we're all sitting around waiting to see if the General Assembly comes back into session next week, what's going to happen. And we have heard that nothing is going to happen. It's going to be an administrative session. But we did hear a rumor.
1: That Governor Roy Cooper is calling the General Assembly back for a special session that may have to do with Medicaid.
0: That is the rumor we heard, but... We have also heard that there isn't that deal on Medicaid expansion yet. So if that were to happen, folks would just gavel in and gavel out. We had that happen a few years back. He called them in for a special session. They gaveled in, gaveled out, and then opened their own session. Remember that?
1: I do remember that. So if that happens in the next couple weeks, I mean— this costs the taxpayer about $50,000 for them to come into session, or at least have session for a day. As we've talked about on the podcast in past episodes, we do know talks are happening between the Senate, the House, and the governor, but the governor seems really ready to hit the gas here and get something moving. Don't know if the General Assembly is on the same timeline. There's also a shakeup this week at the community college system, which led to some other rumors circulating.
0: Yeah, on Sunday, the Assembly released a long-form article about the community college's ousting Thomas Stith, who is well-known in the North Carolina political circle. He has been there since 2021, Mm -hmm. I believe. And they had a closed-door meeting on Friday, and so the rumor started circulating that he would be out. And then a couple days later, he resigns, And everyone's talking about who will be the next president of the community college system.
1: Yeah, a little bit about Stith. He was Governor Pat McCrory's chief of staff, used to be on the city council in Durham, ran for mayor in Durham, and then he went to work for the Trump administration. The assembly broke news that Stith had been under fire for quite some time. And it should be pointed out that the community college system has had a lot of presidents over the last few years it has just been turmoil over there but one name popped up first in the assembly Mm -hmm. as someone who might be the long-term president
0: we talked about this right after i read that article on sunday i think i texted you about it and said do you think that senator ballard will be the next president
1: Yeah. Senator Deanna Ballard, she was on the podcast earlier this year. She is an education senator, if there ever was one. She chairs the Senate Higher Ed Committee Appropriations over there and is well-respected in education circles. In fact, this week she was speaking at the Hunt Institute on education policy. But the question is, you know, one, is this job being slated for her number two is this a good move for her I think a lot of us have been wondering what is Senator Ballard's next move she lost a primary race to Senator Ralph Heiss back in May that was a very hotly contested race she has stayed active she was very much a player in the General Assembly this past session she is very active on social media is this a good move for her
0: I guess we'll find out.
1: When we had her on the podcast, you pointed it out. Like, she is impressive. She's worked in the Bush White House. People see her as a future congresswoman. Maybe if Virginia Fox steps down. Does she run again against Ralph Heiss for that Senate seat as DPI superintendent in her future? A lot of questions. Yeah, you're right. We'll just find out.
0: (laughs) So we teased this a little bit last week on some fundraising numbers that came in, and that was for the race with former Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley and current Congressman Ted Budd running for that Senate seat. But we got a fuller picture of fundraising numbers this week.
1: Yeah, we certainly learned why Beasley was so quick to release her number. She had an impressive haul. We talked about it last week. On the flip side... I think we learned why we were not hearing Congressman Bud numbers. His numbers were not as good as Beasley's in that second quarter.
0: So in the bank, Ted Budd has $1.78 million and Beasley has $4.8 million. So you can just see where that disparity is. You talked about it last week. We expect some federal funding to come in for him and we'll see how that shapes up. But here in North Carolina, the House and the Senate Republican caucuses were also quick to talk about their numbers.
1: No surprise here. Republican leadership really hauled in the cash, and it was reflected in this last report from Friday.
0: So I got this from Stephen B. Wiley's tweet. So on the House side, the House Republicans have 6.5 million dollars cash on hand and the Dems have 2.8 million and he did provide some context that in 2020 after the second quarter which is where we're getting the numbers from the GOP had 4.7 and the Dems had 5.8 so mm-hmm. it's much closer than so if that kind of forecasts anything I don't know if it does or not. But it looks good for the Republicans.
1: You know, I was looking at some of the campaign finance reports from this past week. Noticeable in that Senate Republican caucus. I mean, of course, Senator Berger. Over the cycle, he has raised close to one and a half million dollars. But you know who number two is in the Senate? Who? Senator Jim Perry. He has raised $618,000 in the cycle. Number two, he's over Brent Jackson. Number three, it is, uh, you know, you got David Craven, Todd Johnson, Michael Lee. The list goes on. And we're going to, we have our intern actually working on this project. We're going to get a comprehensive list of all of the legislators that are currently in the General Assembly. And we're going to look at what they're raising.
0: Brian just listed a couple of the individuals on the Senate side. But since we did the House GOP totals, the Senate... GOP has raised more than 8.5 million dollars this cycle and they have 6.6 million on hand and that is about 3 times as much as the Democrats.
1: We've said it in past podcast editions that it looks like Republicans have caught a perfect storm. There is so much dissatisfaction with gas and inflation and interest rates. This is going to be a factor going into the elections this fall. Of course, on the Democratic side, we've said it in past podcast editions, they are banking on abortion being that issue. But if you look at these numbers, it tells a huge story as to where we're going in the election.
0: But it is interesting that our in-state numbers for the House and Senate, the North Carolina House and the North Carolina Senate, are mostly republicans raking in money and then for the senate and the congressional candidates the democrats have more money
1: that's right i mean so balance of power at the us senate i think is in play balance of power at the general assembly is not of course you know you could sell the super majorities i think that's what everyone's saying super majorities But Skye, if you and I were to take this podcast outside the office and do an interview on the street and ask folks what they think of supermajorities, no clue. You certainly understand that we have a 50-50 U.S. Senate and that the Sherry Beasley race could tilt power or keep power. It's also, I think, easier for these U.S. Senate candidates to raise money nationally. Yeah, It is hard for a senator... Todd Johnson to raise money in California. But Sherry Beasley can do that because she could say, look, we are trying to get a majority in the a working majority in the U.S. Senate.
0: So as the election gets closer, like you said, the issues that are on folks' minds, you have inflation, gas prices, and also abortion. And today, again, we're recording on Thursday. Attorney General Josh Stein said, I am not going to ask the court to enforce the 20-week ban in North Carolina.
1: It was a departure from what he said a few weeks ago. The General Assembly leadership, Senator Phil Berger, Speaker Tim Moore, had written him a letter asking him to act on the Dobbs decision, which would implement the 20-week ban here. And Attorney General Stein said that he was leaving this up to professional staff. He seems to be weighing in now and I really don't know how he's able to make this decision. It feels like, again, Scott, I'm not an attorney, you are, so I'm asking the question. When the Dobbs decision came down from the United States Supreme Court, it seems that that 20-week ban that the General Assembly passed a few sessions ago would go into place because of the Roe decision. Roe's gone Dobbs is in its place. Why are we not at 20 weeks?
0: I don't know. I think it's definitely setting up that battle for this year, even though we didn't expect anything on abortion to come in North Carolina until next year.
1: Something interesting on Twitter this morning after Attorney General Stein made his decision kind of got people's attention as it pertains to politics. Senator Tom Tillis tweeted, It's disappointing that in in addition to refusing to do his job, North Carolina's Attorney General is openly endorsing partial birth abortion. Senator Tillis is taking aim at Attorney General Stein. And the question has been lingering for months now. Is Senator Tillis looking at this 2024 race for governor? We're going to continue to watch that rumor circulating. We'll see.
0: While the General Assembly is not technically in session right now, and we have these sessions scheduled until the end of the year, there are a couple of folks who have moved around. We talked about Senator Steinberg leaving and Representative Bobby Hannig being appointed to his Senate seat. Because of that, Paul O'Neill has confirmed that he is seeking appointment to Representative Hennig's current seat.
1: Paul O'Neill was a great right fielder for the New York Yankees. I don't think it's that Paul O'Neill, though, right? Currituck County Commissioner. Actually, you know, Representative Hennig got his political start, I believe, on the Currituck County Commission. You know, we've talked about it before. This is executive boards will make this decision. I imagine that Hannig, it's his job to have over in the Senate. And a lot of folks ask, why would you do that? You're already in the House. He is running for the North Carolina Senate. And I think the calculation for Representative Hannig is it is easier to run as an incumbent. When you get to put that yard sign up that says elect Senator Hannig, incumbency is a powerful tool in elections. So, you know, a few weeks ago, we had Representative Greer Martin on the podcast. He resigned his seat July 8th. He talked about it in our podcast interview. Go back and listen to it. A replacement was named last week. There was a replacement in the General Assembly, Jack Nichols, a longtime Raleigh attorney, was tapped by the Democratic executive board in that district to serve out the remainder of Representative Martin's term. But they kind of did something interesting. They didn't say Jack Nichols would be on the ballot in November. The executive board selected Zach Padgett to be on the ballot in the place of Greer Martin. Greer Martin had filed for election, but then we got news this week that Zach Paget isn't going to be on the ballot.
0: That's right. He had posted, and he is an assistant attorney general at DOJ here, and he said, after much soul-searching, I've decided now is not the time for me to run for office. So what comes next?
1: The next step is next week, this Democratic executive committee here in Wake County is going to convene and they're going to try to figure out who is going to be on the ballot. If you want to be on the ballot (laughs) in November, you need to start making those calls right now. I have a feeling that Jack Nichols may be the person that they put on the ballot. You know, Jack has run in past elections. In fact, he ran against Josh Stein in 2008 when Josh Stein ran for the Senate. Jack lost that race. I could see him making a run at it.
0: What's interesting is that this is a pretty safe democratic seat, yeah, and so it would feel like whoever's running would feel pretty comfortable running in that seat for yeah. the Democratic Party because you're almost guaranteed to win.
1: I have a theory,
0: okay. I love your theories. Go ahead <laughs> All right.
1: So Jack Nichols says I'll serve out the rest of the term that he's doing his job, Zach Paget. Assistant Attorney General over at Josh Stein's office, he says, yeah, I'll run. He's feeling really good. And then Zach asked the question, how much do I make? And someone says, you make $13,900 in this job, and he's got a young family. I think he said, man, I can't do this. Completely reasonable, At right? Zach Padgett,
0: let us know. <laughs>
1: yeah, let us know. Was it the pay, <laughs> Mr. Paget? You know, a couple weeks ago, there was a dust-up, we'll call it a dust-up, on Twitter between Brent Woodcocks, who he is legal counsel over at the North Carolina Senate, to Senator Phil Berger, and Donald Bryson at the John Locke Foundation. Donald is the president over there. The budget had just come out. And there was some questions about a line item. And those questions turned into an exchange, shall we say. So we invited the two on the podcast this week. We talk about that tweet exchange and more. It's a great discussion.
0: back to the podcast, Brent, and welcome to the podcast, Donald.
2: Thank you for having us, or for having me, I don't know what Brent thinks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I like being here, too. Okay. <laughs> to start us off, let's start with you, Donald. Explain what your job is, what your role is, and how you interact with the NCGA.
2: Oh, boy. I try not to interact with the NCGA. <laughs> there are people that do that at the John Locke Foundation. but The John Locke Foundation is one of the uh, older state-based think tanks in the country. We were started in 1990, 89, 90, something like that. Uh, I'm the President of the Foundation, so I oversee uh, communications and uh, communications and research and government affairs, our grassroots efforts and, and that sort of thing. I don't typically directly uh, interact with the, with the General Assembly. I've lobbied uh, before in previous roles. Uh, but you know we have Jordan Roberts down there. Andre Beliveau has moved over there to work with their Government affairs shop. And so I don't typically do that. Uh, but, every, you know, I'm interested in what's going on at the General Assembly, uh, and so I follow hashtag NCGA and hashtag Poll on Twitter, um, and then that leads me into a bottle of hot water sometimes.
0: And that's why we're here, folks. <laughs> okay. Brent has been on the podcast before, but for those who maybe didn't hear his first interview, first go back and listen to that. If not, explain your job and how you interact with think tanks.
3: So I'm Senior Policy Counsel in North Carolina, Senate Republican Caucus, uh, specifically working for Senator Berger. On my day-to-day job, I'm working with legislators to try to give them the best advice possible in order to turn whatever idea they have into a bill that becomes law. That's ultimately the goal. That's what we're really trying to do, make good policy into good law. And a lot of times we can use think tanks and these outside organizations that might have ideas um, that are policy-based. They have experts that work for them who have been in their fields for a long time, and they may have think think of things that we haven't, or they may identify issues that just aren't on our radar screen. And so I I think a really good example of this is House Bill 951, the energy bill that went through last time, John Locke really created a blueprint that was used largely to try to create what that policy was gonna be on the Senate side. And it was an invaluable resource for the people who were trying to work through the differences, both between the Republicans and the Democrats, as well as the Senate and the House and the governor's office. And it just really provided a template that they could build off of in order to create the legislation that would eventually get everybody on board.
1: This podcast edition started when a listener suggested to us that we have the two of you on to discuss a Twitter exchange that happened. In the last week of session, I think it was around the budget. Donald, I I want you to kind of set us up here. There was a line item in the budget that you had a concern about, Mm -hmm. and you registered that concern on Twitter.
2: Sure. So typically what happens uh, at the General Assembly during long session or short session, the the budget goes through regular order. There are uh, appropriations committees and subcommittees. There are debates about amendments to the budget on the floor, the appropriations bill on the floor in both chambers. It's a long, drawn-out process. Arduous process, um, but that's not the process that was followed this year. And mm-hmm. so, um, a conference report came out on the budget, and of course, it's 192 pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have about you know, as a public policy organization, we're still a nonprofit, and so it's all hands on deck. Everybody look at everything you can. And the the chamber put out a thank you tweet to Senator Vicky Sawyer and Senator Jim Perry, thanking them for some changes in transportation funding. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Click, what's going on? Well, the, the press release from the chamber didn't really ex- explain what the policy was, but I added it up and it looked like it was going to move over about two and a half billion dollars in the next five years. A transfer from the general fund to the highway fund. I'm like, what? what is this? I don't understand. And so I asked the chamber Twitter account, whoever runs that, bless their heart, <laughs> uh, after because they were tagged on all of these tweets that came after this, of, is that two and a half billion dollars over the next five years? Um, yes, it is. That, that seems to be different than how we funded transportation in the past. And then Senator Perry and Senator Sawyer, my good friend Brent here, all <laughs> chimed in. What was actually going on in, in my mind was I legitimately don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to find out. I'm seeking information. Um, I should have thought about the fact that it's at the end of the legislative session, everybody's hot, everybody's tired, and Twitter lends itself to snark. Mm-hmm. And there's probably an assumption that you're coming after us. And I really wasn't. And actually, since this exchange between Brent and I, the John Locke Foundation has published two pieces saying, hey, this is actually a good idea. Um, But I just didn't know what was going on at the time. The perception down on Jones Street was the Locke Foundation is trying to score some points. I think that's what was going on. But it led to a longer exchange. But I don't want to put any words in Brent's mouth.
1: Well, let me say this before we get to Brent. Um, Whenever there's a we call it a Twitter fight. I can't say it's a fight, but these exchanges sometimes get a little heated, a little snarky at times, and inevitably, you'll get some text messages from lobbyists saying, hey, get on Twitter. There's a (laughs) great exchange going on, and someone will send the link, and so we were all kind of tuned in and following it, and it was a pretty long thread. By the way, we'll put this tweet in the show notes so that you can see the exchange, but brent you had weighed in senator perry weighed in what was your thinking there as you were responding to to donald's queries
3: well i mean as you know if you follow my twitter feed i try to do politics better (laughs) (laughs) i also carry a set of brass knuckles in my pocket um and i can sometimes have a quick trigger um but You know, surprise, surprise, there was a miscommunication on a platform that is essentially designed to outrage you and make you yell at people. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) 280 characters.
2: It's designed to be direct and snarky. Right.
3: And so I think what I was trying to communicate is I think when you see all of the policy that's involved here, you're going to like this. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, John Locke, obviously, Libertarian Think Tank building roads is one of the few things I think libertarians can all agree that we ought to build roads. Um, so like we, at a baseline, we all agree that there is, there's a problem with our transportation funding yeah. formula. It's gone back a long time and has not been fixed.
1: Excuse me if I'm wrong. It's all about the electric cars and the hybrids not paying full freight in the gas tax. Is that where the gist of it is?
3: That's a part of it. And, okay. and that and the, right. there's not necessarily as many People on the roads driving the the gas tax is variable. I mean, there there's lots of problems with with the funding mechanism. We've also tried to stop stealing from the highway fund over mm-hmm. the last decade or so, which right. was something that was going on with previous general assemblies yeah. in olden times. And so, <laughs> the uh, what 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 I was trying to communicate at that time was once mm-hmm. all the information comes out, I think you're going to like this. What what was really going on is there was a transfer that was happening that was supposed to be based on what happens if you take the sales tax from transportation related goods mm-hmm. and services what if you take that and you t- give it to the highway fund saying this still kind of obeys what we call the user pays mm-hmm. principle mm-hmm. Um, and i think that that's something that donald and john john Locke foundation care a lot about the user Absolutely. pays principle mm-hmm. is something that they defend and think it's a good idea i mean quite honestly i have some questions about that i mean the user pays I I, I agree the user should pay for roads. I just don't think the only time you use a road is when you drive on it. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I sit at home and get Amazon delivered to me, I still used a road. If Mm -hmm. I get DoorDash comes to me, I still used a road. If I go to the grocery store and pick up fresh produce, probably Brent Jackson has has trucked that somewhere (laughs) in order to get that. And so I've used the road. And so, you know, I I do think that using the sales tax somewhat and and any general fund revenue to, to do that, I mean, we're all users of the roads, and so it, I think it makes sense to me. And, and it seems like that it's essentially where uh, the Locke Foundation, i not going to put words in your mouth, right. but I saw John Hood's um, column in, in <laughs> Carolina Journal. And so it seems like at the end of the day, people think this is not a perfect solution and not a long-term solution. It's more of a Band-Aid, mm-hmm. but it's at least a step in the right direction.
0: Going back to the original tweet, what mm-hmm. made you think that the best place for me to ask my questions is on Twitter?
3: Oh boy, you, you
2: <laughs> want to talk about process. <laughs> um, and, and I had a good conversation with Senator Perry and, and another one with Senator Sawyer about this, of just by proxy of the process that happened with the budget this year, typically you know, we would have heard public discussion in transportation appropriations in both chambers and that sort of thing. It, and people just didn't have a chance to get all of that. Uh, of course, the John Locke Foundation. Transportation is something we are concerned about. We're we're also working on healthcare and energy and education and elections policy, which is you know non-controversial <laughs> altogether. Uh, and it just we we missed it. We and I legitimately didn't know what was going on. Um, like I said, I had about 48 hours before the first Senate floor vote was going to be, and so. What's the quickest way for me to find out what's going on? I'll just respond directly to the interest group that tweeted out a thank you because clearly the chamber knew what was going on. They knew enough to know to say thank you for Mm -hmm. it, right? And so, hey, what is this? Uh, And then the chamber didn't respond. If you look at that entire exchange, they responded once. Mm -hmm. And then it's, um, you know, Donald against the Senate caucus, which really is not what I wanted (laughs) at all at that point. But that's sort of how it happened
1: let's talk about process. And I want to state for the record that we're in late July and I'm not wearing a suit. I am glad we're out of session. (laughs) And what got us out of session earlier than usual is the fact that we had an expedited budget process. Mm -hmm. But Brent, that does come at a cost, right? This budget just kind of came from on high and it does jam things up as you're trying to process it, right?
3: Right. I mean, the ideal process certainly is one that Really favors what happens in the long session, where you get the governor gives a a proposal, either the house or the senate starts it. They go through an entire process, then Mm -hmm. the other chamber gets it. They get to make their own changes. Then you go to conference, you negotiate that. I mean, that really does produce the best process. Obviously, we adopt biennial budgets, so Mm -hmm. it's two-year budget, and then the second year we just make adjustments. Mm -hmm. Now. Sometimes in the past we have done what looked more like a regular process, Mm -hmm. but sometimes in the past we've met for three months. And because we had met for 11 months last year, no one really had the appetite to do that. So it was a six to eight week session. And just the reality of getting the the budget chairs together, the the sub chair areas, and then to get the corners together in order to actually produce a budget. It just takes that long. It just Mm -hmm. takes the entire session. Yeah. um and so yeah i mean i think that it's a fair criticism to say like this could have been rolled out in a way that people would have had more opportunity to study it and learn about it that's obviously true if we had, had a more uh drawn out process mm-hmm. um but the most important thing about legislation is that it passes and then the governor signs it and yeah. we knew we kind of had a one-shot deal here yeah. and so that's what we took and i think like i said it, open to criticism on that but it worked.
0: Brent said something earlier that I want to bring to you Donald. He was talking about the blueprint that think tanks could provide Mm -hmm. to the General Assembly or in other states your counterparts whether they're on the left or the right can provide those sort of blueprints. You can think of the national orgs that do that as well. Mm -hmm. What would you say to folks who say that is not a fair way to move the process forward or people who think that you are some organization that tells the General Assembly what to do, and they just do whatever you want.
2: Oh, oh, the state would be much different if I just told the General Assembly (laughs) what to do, (laughs) right? Uh, Our point is to sort of set a lighthouse. You know, we're Currituck Lighthouse out there Mm -hmm. to make sure that everybody's headed in the right path or what we perceive from our point of view to be the right path. Now, um, if Brent and I have a goal of, you know, running from Murphy to Manio. Uh, but we have to take a pit stop in Greensboro, were we unsuccessful? No, we are absolutely headed in the right direction. That's just all we could get on that tank of gas or whatever, depending on you know what you're driving that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that way, we're supposed to provide sort of this Platonian ideal of like, where can we possibly go? But sometimes that's just not doable. You know, I, I think the, the example is uh, we like this idea of transportation funding to be a user fee. If you use the roads, uh, then you should pay for the roads. And North Carolina does a better job at that than a lot of other states, than most other states. I think our ideal policy, which we published a paper on last year, would be to phase out the gas tax and turn into a mileage tax. Mm. That has its own very large set of political liabilities, right? That's just really hard to talk people into, Republicans and Democrats. And so what the General Assembly actually did in this in this case was something that they, they found a middle ground where they transferred other user fees within the sales tax to sort of shore up that funding. I think that's fine, I think it's very practical, it makes a lot of sense, it's very responsible and adheres to the principles uh, that we talked about. Um, Is it perfect, to Brent's earlier point? No, but golly, it's a lot better than where we were.
1: So, Brent, it's the last days of session. This Twitter exchange happens. In your opinion, what is the best way to engage legislators and and offer criticism?
3: Well, I mean, look, I mean, I I think Twitter is the worst way, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe slide in the DMs. (laughs) Um, But um, obviously, let's lay responsibility. I'm the one that jumped in. Okay. And, and answer like i was the one that started it so like you know Shame. he asked the question <laughs> I, I jumped in so uh, that's 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 a fair criticism of my actions um to say that probably one of the easiest ways would have been to pick up the phone and call somebody that was involved in the, in, in crafting it or be in center perry or center sawyer's office the next morning saying let's talk about it i think what was unfortunate about the exchange is it kind of led to this idea that I was saying you're not allowed to talk about this and I I never re- I didn't mean to communicate that I can understand why it was a miscommunication because of the way that I phrased what I said on Twitter mm-hmm. you know you don't sure I've tweeted I don't know 50,000 times or something that they're not all gold yeah. um so like <laughs> what I was trying to say is if you just wait for all the information to come out I think your your uh, your mind might change about it and 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 that I think you know anybody can t- can take that advice like just calm down for a second you don't have to have an instant reaction and i i fall victim to that as much as anybody
2: sure and then i had this exchange with brent and then like days later i had an exchange with greg meyer so i deleted twitter off my phone like i'm just i'm done <laughs> tell um, us about that
0: <laughs> i've got time you can do that.
2: you mean the deleting or the exchange
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't need to know about the deleting
2: <laughs> no it's We live in a strange political environment where, you know, as conservatives, I I can't say any... I feel like I can't say anything about marginal tax rates Mm -hmm. without it being, you know, you're a white supremacist, right? Mm -hmm. You are a fascist Mm -hmm. Hitler in the making. And I'm like, it's marginal tax rates, guys. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Like, this isn't a reasonable political environment. That's crazy. That's like... Me saying that someone who wants to expand Medicaid is stalin and they're gonna we're all gonna go to the gulags. Like yeah. right? Like that's no reasonable person should think that. I still say that, you know, the, the bravest people in North Carolina, the first are entrepreneurs. They're you know, mm-hmm. they put their livelihood on the line and the second bravest people in the world are people with anonymous Twitter accounts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So brave, keyboard (laughs) warriors, the heroes we deserve.
1: You know, we get beat up just for the hashtag do politics better. We get so many critics of people just are so mean on Twitter. People don't want to do politics. Better.
3: <laughs> like that's very. Everyone hates that idea. I mean, why don't you come up with this? I mean, yeah, to
1: Just Donald, the way we're doing it is great. <laughs> to, to Donald's point, they say like, "I will not do politics better with fascists and racists and misogynists." And like, right. "What are you talking about?" Yeah,
2: it, it, it's all very strange. The, the strange with, with Greg Meyer had to do with. This article from from the Charlotte Observer. We're, we're making a short film. The Locke Foundation has never oh, made yeah. a short film before. Yes, I saw and, that. And it is about the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, Wilmington riot, whatever you want to call it. Um, and to tell the story, we create a fictional love story. Right? We didn't. I didn't have anything to do that We've got a creative team that did. And apparently, that's just, you, you can't do that mm-hmm. or something. And so there's a writer with the Charlotte Observer who, you know, well, you're. you're not taking it seriously have you read the script have you talked to anybody uh no and then sort of of course representative meyer flies off the handle and agrees and i'm just like i don't understand what just happened here like you think we're do you honestly think how far do you think the john Locke foundation is going to go publicly with our donors or any reasonable human if you think that we're going to be like white percent white supremacy is good 1898 riot was good like we're not glorifying it guys Uh, and then, you know, how, do you, how dare you romanticize it and put a love story? Was nobody in Wilmington in 1898 <laughs> in love? Nobody? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's
1: crazy. Yeah. Brent, the General Assembly gets a lot of criticisms from interest groups, particularly on the left. Can you talk about how the Senate really processes it? Does that move the needle?
3: I think that what is most apropos is the Senate is. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I don't think you're going to move us. You're not gonna- I mean, well, that's the thing, working with um, interest groups, working with uh, think tanks and the General Assembly and all kinds of people, lobbyists as well, it's like at some point you have to realize, okay, these people aren't going away, and neither are we. Mm-hmm. So we we'll have to figure out how to work together again and again and again mm-hmm. and try to be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and that goes to both sides. I mean, it's just like if you're going to have to continue to interact and you have goals, both of you, maybe try to find the ways that your goals intersect. And when they don't, go your separate ways, but there might be still an opportunity to work together in the future. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think it was last year, Brent, we had a client who decided to debate you about Supreme Court justices. (laughs) I remember I was just cringing, right? Because I had a client who had a bill in your chamber and it wasn't about Supreme Court justices. (laughs) And uh, I remember I sent him a message like, what are you doing? You get this a lot, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh,
3: you know, it's not appropriate for a staffer to hold a grudge or try to, to like, punish anyone for True. anything that goes on. Yeah. But, I mean, members, have they, they, they may remember, yeah, you know, like, they, they remember negative experiences. And so it's something that people should think about. I mean, it's just human interaction. If you initially have a negative experience with somebody, it might take time to build trust with them again. Yeah, And so it's just a, a
1: fact of life. With these disagreements Mm -hmm. with the General Assembly, and some of them are profound disagreements, Medicaid is probably the biggest issue that you guys are in conflict with, with the General Assembly. How do you stay faithful to your organization's mission, your donors that fund you guys, Mm -hmm. uh, your board of directors and your staff, while also maintaining relevance at the General Assembly? Because you have managed to do that.
2: Medicaid expansion is a great example. The, the number one rule I would think I would say, and a, a lot of people left and right will disagree with this tactic, but it's civility. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can do is lay out as many facts as possible, even if I'm emotional about them, mm-hmm. I, is to continue to lay out as many facts as possible to um, uh, you know state senators, state representatives, or, or whoever. Uh, and try to help them understand. There might be some emotional arguments there. Uh, I think that a lot of people who haven't been around this game or, or politics generally think that automatically that means to go to, you know, we were talking earlier about accountability measures and you start electioneering against those people and all that. <laughs> and sometimes that's the case, but understand that when you do that, you are crossing the Rubicon. Mm-hmm. You, that relationship is over and you're not going to be able to do anything else with them ever again. The General Assembly may end up expanding Medicaid. They very well may, but you know what? The General Assembly is, right? (laughs) It's gonna continue to be there and we're gonna be concerned about reforming Medicaid and we're gonna continue to be concerned about transportation funding and the budget and tax reform and education policy and that sort of thing. And so I have to be able to go down and talk to Senator Rabin or Senator Perry or, uh, you know, Senator Berger, any of those people on other issues. So,
0: Brent, has there ever been a time where you're arguing with someone on Twitter or an interest group is attacking you for something or your chamber or your boss for something where you walked away from the fight and you said, you know what, they really moved me on this?
3: That's a very good question. Nothing necessarily comes to mind, but I do think that sometimes it provides perspective. Even this conversation um that we had with that i had with donald that you know wasn't exactly pleasant in the moment i mean when they point out well you know we only had 24 hours to look at this i was like well that's fair criticism you know i mean i have to admit that there are weaknesses to my argument as well so i do think that sometimes you know obviously anytime you you get some pushback you might examine your own position a little bit more and think well you know maybe there's a way we could improve this and you know sometimes people do make a good point uh when we roll out legislation, we don't expect that it's perfect right away. I mean, that's why we have folks that come to committee and they talk to us about, hey, have you really thought about this issue or could maybe we massage it this way? And, you know, many times I've went back and forth with the two of you saying, mm-hmm. well, I like your idea, but could we do it this way? And normally we can find common ground to try to get what you want done as well as what the legislator wants done.
1: Mm-hmm. In our first interview with you, Brett, you talked about Twitter And a how important it is as far as it is an exchange of ideas. NC poll hashtag. A lot of us use that, but you also put it in perspective as to how unimportant it is.
3: Yeah, I mean, Twitter isn't real life, and like ninety-five percent of the posts on Twitter, it's on the NC poll hashtag, are like from people that are as far as they can be to the right or the left and aren't trying to convince anybody of anything. They just want a virtue signal. They just want to make sure everybody knows exactly where they stand on every issue. And if if you wait long enough, you're right. It eventually becomes about fascism or white supremacy. Just hold on. (laughs) Just watch the argument play out. It'll be less than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. We'll get to it. Um, So, I mean, I just think that it can be a productive place. It has become a less productive place over time. But I do think that there are, th- there are conversations that happen that are good um, and that when people come forward with an idea and they articulate why they're for it and how it can make things better, mm. that's a really good way to work with people on Twitter. I, I like y'all's Instagram account. Anytime you have a bill, you highlight the people that are doing it, you explain what, exactly what it does in a succinct way, and you advocate for it. I mean, that is really the perfect way to to interact with the General Assembly because you're not only pushing forward your idea, you're not only advocating for your client, you're educating people, and you're also thanking people when they get it. Because people need a reward structure in order to continue to pay attention, continue to try to make good public policy, and continue to want to interact with you.
1: Yeah.
0: We're going to clip that to get new clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you we. Should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have
1: a general rule: we praise in public, uh, we criticize behind closed
0: doors. So we were talking about the process of the budget and the way that came out, and you didn't feel you had a lot of time. Everybody at Locks looking at the budget together. If there was something that you could do, or if you had it within your power to change something about the process of the way the General Assembly works, what would it be?
2: It would actually be going through the through regular order, and I know this is painful, but I think it would be going through regular order on the budget every year. Uh, I, I think that the way North Carolina does their budgets in long session and short session is actually a great example to Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, if we had more people who were doing the really boring stuff of appropriations subcommittees and appropriations committees and debating amendments on an actual budget, uh, Congress would be less of a dumpster fire than it is.
1: I think it's fair to say it's a short. It was only a short session right. process. But uh, it's worth pointing out that you stand shoulder to shoulder here with the Justice Center because I think that was their number one Mm. complaint. And they're a liberal think tank, arguably your counterpart, I guess. I think that's fair to say. But yeah, they they would agree, right?
2: Uh, Generally speaking, you know, Rob Schofield and I, every once in a while, when he's not talking about nationalizing oil, we agree (laughs) on things. Uh, And
3: that's one of them.
1: Yeah. Brent, how would you reform the way we criticize the General Assembly or offer critiques?
3: I mean, I think that your philosophy of criticize privately, especially before you do it publicly, because maybe you have a criticism that you launch privately and you decide, I'm not being heard, and then you need, you need to go public with it. I mean, there's obviously room for First Amendment core political speech in North Carolina, so <laughs> yes. I support that idea, even for criticizing me. Um, you know, I think uh, it's kind of natural for somebody who's been in the legislative side for as long as I have been to be biased um, about legislative power. I mean, I'm an extremist on the issue. I'll I'll totally uh, cop to that. Um, But I also believe that the legislature is mentioned first in the Constitution among the branches for a reason. It's 170 people from all over the state, closer to their constituents, that can answer questions and are accountable as they can possibly be, despite any claims of redistricting and all the rest of it. We'll we'll leave that aside for this podcast. But... (laughs) um that it's the best system anybody's been able to come up with Mm -hmm. to create a democracy and so yes i'm jealous of legislative power and i think that it's important that it plays an important role in how our state is governed yeah
0: brent woodcox and donald bryson thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking through this disagreement or misinterpretation yes dust up that you had a few weeks back and how we can all come together to do politics better
2: Like
3: you. Glad to be here to provide a good example for the youth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're doing it for the kids. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information so if you came here for a fight maybe that's not what you found in the podcast but was a really interesting discussion into the weeds a little bit about think tanks versus how things operate at the ncga and how to register your complaints to them
1: i think we could also learn a bigger lesson sky whenever you're in these twitter discussions or dust-ups or exchanges It's a good idea to say, hey, let's get together and talk about this. And I think you will find that agreement can be found. It's not to say you're going to change someone's mind, but I think you get to see the other person's perspective. If you're out there and your tendency is to have some sort of Twitter discussion, think about meeting someone at a local bar and just talking about it there. Tweet Tweet of of the the week.
0: week. This week's tweet of the week is from will doran he's at will underscore doran he's a reporter for the nno here in town and his tweet is i regret to inform all my nc poll followers that the outback steakhouse pack has not been active for over a decade
1: <laughs> oh man
0: but like what were they lobbying for i think about cheaper the- onions yeah cheaper onion. that's where you get the blooming onion isn't it yeah you know, I operate, or I work on a federal pack mm-hmm. and when I go into the FEC to find them, sometimes I like you just have to laugh at the pack titles.
1: All right, what's some interesting ones?
0: So some funny ones I would include are Empire Strikes Pack, <laughs> 6 pack. Okay. And Just Drink the Kool-Aid Pack. <laughs>
1: Oh, I love it.
0: This is your sign to get more creative.
1: Yeah, it's like these vape stores. You see Darth Vapor or whatever that's out there. They just, yeah, these are great names. Love it.
0: You have a real problem. Huge problem. And I'm not talking about getting taller. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I am trying to get taller. I've mm-hmm. resigned myself that I'm not going to lose weight. Yeah. It's impossible. So you're going to
0: get taller. Yeah,
1: I'm working on getting taller. So
0: every day this week, he's asked me, do I look taller? And then you said you thought you grew?
1: Mm-hmm, maybe a quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. I'm working on it. I think uh, we'll see. But I'm trying to lose weight. And I'm trying, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, I'm trying to get into some better habits.
0: Right. And remember when we talked about your sleep schedule? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just update people. How is that going for you? Not good. Yeah very much not good.
1: Yeah. So I go to bed about 930 10 o'clock, which I think, you know, part of being out of session, I can go to bed that early. So I go to bed, and I've made a concerted effort to read every night because that usually drifts me off to sleep. I'm reading a great book. It's not working. And I find myself just putting the book down after a few chapters, and I can't sleep. I am in a very bad place with insomnia. Now, I am doing some things with this insomnia because I'm not just sitting there frustrated. I've been getting some stuff done.
0: Yeah, so great example. This morning, I wake up. I see some emails from Brian, 1 a.m., 45 4:43 a.m. I wake up at 4:45 a.m. So I'm realizing this dude is still awake from yesterday while I'm getting up for the new day. Mm-hmm. So I was like this is not good. And so I texted you I'm like I'm a little worried about your sleep schedule.
1: Yeah, it's it's bad. Uh I have been working through the night. That has helped, you know, i've gotten some work done that although
0: i'm not sure the the brightness of having a screen in front of you is going to help you go to sleep but you know i'm not a specialist here
1: you say that but you know what's worse than staring at a screen at two thirty in the morning
0: trying to get taller at two thirty in the
1: morning <laughs> trying to get taller is difficult i'm working on it though being alone with my own thoughts <laughs> Is worse than staring at a screen. I just sit there and go through list of things. I mean,
0: what do you have to think about at 2 in the morning that Every- can't be solved?
1: Everything. Everything. I am so awake at 2.30 in the morning. Yeah. I have been getting my exercise in. And actually, it has helped me go to sleep. In fact, I was thinking about moving my exercise up in the night, like maybe midnight. But what I do past few nights, I leave the house at about 2.30 in the morning, and I walk three or four miles (laughs) through my neighborhood just to get my exercise in. Now, here's the good thing. I finally go to sleep at 4 a.m. I'll wake up at 8, which is late for me because I like to get up early. But it is great to put your watch on and see that all your rings are pretty much closed, and you've gotten about 7,000 steps in, and you You're just starting your day. I don't know what to do. If anyone has any suggestions, I've tried all sorts of things. You know, what
0: have you tried?
1: Soothing videos on YouTube.
0: Weird. Okay.
1: Uh, I've counted sheep. I've looked. I don't think
0: that's a real thing. I know,
1: but I thought, well, you know, it worked on the cartoons. Okay. I'll count sheep. Reading. Reading usually does relax me, but you know what?
0: You know what is happening? But you're listening to the thoughts in your head instead of reading the words on the page. It ha- that is so true.
1: I'll be- I'm reading a great book. It's called The Paper Palace. But I find I'm sitting there reading the pages, and work creeps into the chapter. So I'm reading the words, but suddenly this client appears and I'm thinking about that while reading the words. It, and, you know, we're out of session. There is nothing I can control right now. What's done is done. When you can't sleep, it, you start to panic, right? I At least I do. I look at the clock.
0: Mm-hmm. I, start, can't can't, at the clock. I, I can't look down, at the clock. I'm counting down. I'm like,
1: oh, I've got six hours. I've got five hours. uh, Someone
0: help this man. Yeah, if you have... If you have tips for sleeping, getting taller, Mm -hmm. whatever they are, reach out to Brian.
1: Yeah, I need to get taller.
0: Separately. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Yeah,
1: I am getting my exercise in. That is a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at me. My rings are almost closed. Look Mm. at that. You know what I think the origin of my insomnia is? Is because in my effort to get taller, I am not binge eating at night i'm not eating big bowls of cereal because you know what really does put me to sleep is a full sugar sugar (laughs) if i can go downstairs and knock out about three bowls of fruit loops then yeah i can sleep like a baby but i'm not doing that i think my body is telling me brian Go downstairs and eat fruit loops,
0: so you could either be a fitness model or you could be someone who sleeps.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm committed to being taller, okay
0: because
1: I'm not gonna lose weight.
0: That's- I think that's enough of your personal life. <laughs> <laughs> Join us next week while we talk about Brian's <laughs> other problems. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we may turn this into a call-in show. We need some answers (laughs) to my problems.
0: As always, thanks for listening. We really appreciate all of y'all. And we will talk to you next week. We will give you an update (laughs) on Brian's sleeping problems, talk about the new issues in NC Poland, and whatever else comes up next week. Until then, get some rest, enjoy the summer, and remember to do politics better.